As Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, including genealogies. And today we begin our new series that will continue through the end of the year, a series that's kind of an extended series that will go into Advent. Um, This is a series that we've titled Prophecy Fulfilled, Christ's Advent in Matthew, covering the first two chapters in Matthew. There will be some sermons uh, outside of the series, sort of interspersed, for example, uh, as we have an EFCA representative and a Pillar and Send representative coming to preach, as well as our joint service next week, uh, which is super exciting. Um, As Siobhan said, I'm not going to be able to be there because I'm going to be preaching actually for another Pillar church. Um, but if you haven't been there up to uh, Sweet Communion's facilities for one of our joint events, be looking forward to that. It'll be super fun and to be able to do a baptism during the service. That's super fun. Um, but this series is really looking at, uh, again, the first two chapters of Matthew and how each section in these first two chapters points to how Christ fulfills prophetic Scripture. They provide a portrait of how Christ's coming, that's what we mean by Advent, is his coming, how that fulfills prophetic scripture. In chapter 1, verse 22, the second section that we'll deal with in two weeks, says all of this, the virgin birth that is, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus being born in Bethlehem was to fulfill what was written by the prophet. For so it was written Chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt and then coming back was, quote, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then chapter 2, verse 16, Herod's slaughter of the innocents, as it's called, the males, uh, the young males there, that was then to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And in the last section, when Jesus returns to live with his family in Nazareth, that was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And then, of course, our passage today which is seeing Jesus as fulfilling this long lineage. There's significance to the lineage. Matthew opens his book with this passage, a genealogy, which is seeking to answer the question then for us, who is this Jesus that the rest of the book is going to be about? Um, I know this doesn't always happen, but if you get a new book and you open it up, if it's a nonfiction book, that is, what happened, what's at the very beginning of the book? Does anyone know? It's the part that most people don't read. Well, the table of contents, yeah. You should read that too to get an orient- oriented, but I'm thinking of the introduction and the preface. Okay, you're not supposed to skip those parts. They're actually supposed to introduce you to the book. Okay, this is also a part that you're not supposed to skip. It's meant to introduce you to the book. Uh, Matthew is using this section to answer that question for us. Who is this Jesus? The genealogy is orienting us to him. And I know some of you are, uh, and others get really interested in ancestry and you subscribe or fill out those, you go through those organizations that provide you some information on your heritage. Um, and why? Because people find it interesting to know their family before them who came before them, or maybe it's for medical reasons or what have you, but you want to know a little bit about the people who came before you, and that also helps you understand a little bit about yourself. So to hear, except Jesus' ancestry is all the more important. And it's not so much the importance of who came before Jesus as much as it is about what that implies about Jesus. Who comes before Jesus tells us 
who Jesus is. And so you'll see this passage, hopefully you noticed, it's very, it has a very simple structure. You have the beginning and the end, which mirror each other by mentioning that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, as well as how he is, uh, he, his, in his lineage is this event called the deportation of Babylon. And then the three middle sections that give all the listing of the people, they're broken up into those three sections, right? First, the first one begins with Abraham, then the next one with David, and then the next one is headed by the deportation of Babylon. Do you see that? It's a pretty simple structure. The top and the end introduce it and close it off. And we see here then three major themes. The son of Abraham is meant to, is meant to conjure up in gesture to this longing throughout the Old Testament of an offspring from Abraham's line who would bless the nations, through whom God would bless the nations more properly. We also see the son of David, which gestures to this longing of a king from David's line who would finally bring about God's kingdom. And in this mention of the deportation of Babylon, or to Babylon, that's the exile, right? When, when the southern kingdom was, uh, when God caused them to be exiled and go to Babylon. And this speaks to the longing of full restoration of God's people. When God would work a new act of exodus, a new exodus, by means of a new covenant. He would redo his redemption and restore his people. And so each of these tells of the unfinished story of Israel. They tell something of Israel's story yet unfinished. And so by putting these things as part of Jesus' genealogy, which lead to Jesus, Jesus is seen as where they're all headed, Matthew is effectively telling us that Jesus is fulfilling these things. He's fulfilling these hopes. Jesus, in other words, is the fulfillment of Israel's unfinished story. And that is the summary of our passage today. That Jesus, Matthew wants us to know, is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of Israel's story, which is the story of God's plan to save all humanity. And so what we'll do is we will look at each of those three themes. There's also a bonus fourth theme that I'll throw in at the end, so you have to wait for that. But the first one then is this, is that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through whom God will bless the nations. We saw that in verse 1 and verse 17. He's the son of Abraham. And the first section, verse 2, heads with Abraham. Now, you may remember if we go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned, what does God do? He not only uh, gives curses on account of their sin, but he also, in those curses, within the curse, provides a glimmer of hope. He gives what's called, what theologians sometimes call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. He talked, talking to the serpent, which is the embodiment of Satan, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Those that come from her line. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Although you will bruise his heel, he will ultimately crush your skull. There will come someone, in other words, God says, who will reverse what Satan caused. And eventually, fast-forwarding quite, fast forwarding quite a bit here, we get to Abraham, where God takes that mission of, an, of a saving offspring, of someone who will, who will reverse the effects of the curse, and we see God promise to Abraham an offspring. 
He tells him in, verse, in chapter 22, verses 17 through 18, Surely I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And for sake of time this morning, since we had a good amount of things in the early part of the service, I'm just going to be reading these passages for you. We're going to be kind of going at a high level. So I'll give you some of these references, though. You can look at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. And this is where we see God's promise, his covenant that he makes to Abraham. And it's through this offspring, then, that God is promising to restore his kingdom as it existed in the Garden of Eden. God promises to Abraham in these various chapters to give him a a, a great amount of descendants, God is going to remake a people for himself. He's going to give him a land, the promised land, which is depicted as a sort of new garden of Eden. They are going to experience God's blessing and his special relationship with him, which eventually became embodied in the temple and tabernacle. And eventually, he is going to carry these blessings to the nations because this plan is not meant to be restricted to Israel. It wasn't ultimately about Israel. Even from the beginning, it was a plan for the whole of humanity. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is this offspring through whom God blesses the nations. One example of this is Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that that offspring, which can be translated Uh, or can be understood as plural or singular, he says in its ultimate sense, it is singular, referring to Christ. And this blessing, the Abrahamic blessings, to bless the nations was ultimately achieved by Jesus' substitutionary death, his sacrificial death, death bearing our curse. In verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 3, Paul says that Christ redeemed us, he bought us, from the curse of the law. All the curses that Israel experienced under the old covenant, that was was representative of all of our experience under the law. That on account of our sin, we get the curse. Just as Adam and Eve sinned and were cursed, so all of humanity recapitulates that story, as did Israel. And Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law, how? By becoming a curse for us. All, for everyone that would trust in Christ, their sins are placed on him and he dies the death that they deserved. So that, then Paul continues, in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come even to the Gentiles. The blessings come, the blessings of Abraham come to us through Christ's saving death. In verse 16, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, by faith, by trusting in Jesus, nothing that we do, but by trusting in him for salvation, God justifies us. He declares us right in his courtroom, even though we've sinned. Paul says that this was God preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he said, in you the nations will be blessed. And that has come to fulfillment in Jesus And that is what Matthew is alluding to here. Here is the offspring of Abraham we've been waiting for. Secondly, Matthew identifies Jesus as the descendant of David, whose kingship will bring God's kingdom. So as with Abraham, we saw God's promises to restore his kingdom, to bring about a new Eden again. And as we come to see with David then, we see that at the the center of that kingdom is a promised king. There's a king of the kingdom. 
And that we see that this promised offspring of Abraham, this conquering seed who defeats the serpent, he will also be a royal ruler from the line of David. And so God also made a covenant, not just with Abraham, but he made a covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, we get this covenant. And God says this to David in verses 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, you die, in other words, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, a temple, that is, which is ultimately, which was fulfilled in Solomon in its first instance. But then he also says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this begins then a stream of messianic hopes where ultimately the offspring of David did not fully meet those expectations. And so we see across the Old Testament, this is a, a massive theme, but just one example. You can look at Daniel, for example. In Daniel 2 or in Daniel 7, Daniel 7, we get this vision. Daniel has this vision of a son of man who represents the people. When God gives his kingdom over to his people, it's embodied in this son of man figure. He says, I saw night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Or Daniel 2, where the kingdom surpasses, it destroys, and it replaces all previous human kingdoms. And by identifying Jesus as the son of David, by tracing his lineage from David, he's, that's Matthew's way of saying, prepare to meet your king. Jesus, he says, is the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ, okay? Christ is a title. It means anointed one. And there were various figures in the Old Testament who would have been anointed for their positions. Most likely, Christ here is referring to the king who is anointed. In other words, by calling Jesus the Christ, we're saying he is the anointed king. He's the one with royal blood from David's line. And this may also be why Matthew draws attention to this repetition of 14 at the end. Um, it's a little uncertain, but you notice he says that each of the sections of the genealogy, there's a 14 generation that he's designed them to have. And in those days, people would sometimes give letters numerical value, and the letters of David's name come out to a value of 14. And so if this interpretation is correct, this would be another way of Matthew pointing to Jesus' significance as a descendant of 14. Each of those 14 sequences reflecting that he's from David's line. What's interesting, though, is that when Jesus comes as the Davidic king, he comes as a king who achieves his kingdom by sacrifice. He is the lion from Judah's line, you'll remember from Revelation, who achieves his lionhood by being a lamb. You might remember that right after Peter confesses, in the middle of Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, Peter confesses what? Who do people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the king. And from that time, Matthew says, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. We read that, we're used to that, we're accustomed to that. That's bizarre. You confess that I'm the Christ, 
And from that time, he goes forward and talks about how he's going to die. No wonder Peter, wrongfully, rebukes him right after that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is the very reason I have come. This is how my kingship will be established, by dying for the citizens of the kingdom. And so when Jesus dies, Matthew wants us, as Matthew depicts the uh, death of Christ, which some people have described the Gospels as essentially stories about Jesus' death with really long introductions. Why? Because the stories, the accounts of Jesus' death take up a huge percentage of the books. They are what's being emphasized. This is how Jesus' kingship comes about. And Matthew wants us to see when he portrays Jesus' death, he does it in an ironic way. The, the soldiers, they strip Jesus and they put on a scarlet robe in chapter 27. They mock him. They give him like a, a kingly robe, so to say. They put on a crown of thorns. They give him a rod, a reed, and they kneel down and they mockingly say, Hail King, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews, not knowing that he really is the king. And that as he is beaten and as he sacrifices himself, it's not contrary to his kingship as they think. They think they're, well, of course you're not the king. That's why we're mocking you. A king would never have this done to him. But this is precisely how our king is king, by sacrificing himself for others. And so when Jesus is crucified, they put over his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Our king reigns from a cross. And again, he achieves, just as he achieves the Abrahamic blessings by bearing our curse, so Jesus achieves his kingdom fundamentally in, by bringing us, bringing us out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. By dealing with our trespasses, by dealing with our treason against God and making us rightful citizens, giving us a rightful citizenship by dealing with our sins in his kingdom. Three, we see that Jesus is the one who brings an end to exile. We see this because he, at the beginning and the end, or actually in the middle and the end, Matthew mentions this deportation of Babylon. He mentions that as a feature of his genealogy, which is interesting that Jesus is seen, as, is seen as bringing resolution to that. Now, what did the exile signify? It wasn't merely a historical or political reality in the sense that the, the Jewish people were removed from their land. That, of course, is true. But it conveyed a lot. We should, when we read it in light of the whole Bible, we should understand the significance of this. That this was effectively God reversing his kingdom promises to them. The, the, the promises that God had made for them to dwell in the land, to be his people, to have a king from David's line, those were all reversed. Remember, God had delivered them out of slavery in a foreign land, Egypt. This is effectively God putting them back into slavery. As Hosea says, into a new Egypt. When he's talking about Assyria specifically there. But God is reversing the exodus. And he was removing them from their land, their new Eden. Just as Adam and Eve were cursed, they felt they dealt with the curse and they had to be exiled from the garden. So Israel is now exiled from their garden, experiencing the curses of the old covenant. The temple, the place signifying God's special presence and blessing among them, was destroyed. And the line of kings from David's line came to an end, suspending that hope of a rescuing ruler from David's lineage. 
This was effectively the death of the nation. It was their death as a people. And it is the exile that all of us experience post-Adam. It's reflective of the exile we all experience apart from Christ. This is why then, when we come to Ezekiel 37, for example, this vision of the, drally, the, dr- the valley of dry bones, that's why God depicts Israel as a bunch of dead corpses. Right? Why? Because this was their death as a nation. They are dead. And he depicts their future res- restoration then as nothing less than an actual resurrection. And at the end of that chapter, Ezekiel 37, we see that God brings their restoration by means of a new covenant. He says in verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And of course, Jesus, when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus fulfilling this, right? The the, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, when Jesus institutes what we practice as the Lord's Supper, Jesus identifies the cup as his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the exile was ultimately a spiritual problem. It was the people's sin. It was the people's spiritual deadness, as Ezekiel saw. They were a valley of dry bones. And it was God's judgment on them for that sin, exiling them, facing the curse for that sin. Jesus then is seen in the New Testament as the resolution to exile because he dies for the very sins that bring God's judgment of exile. And he renews his people, just as Ezekiel promised, by giving them that spirit of the new covenant, which is just what Jesus says he is ratifying in his death in the Lord's Supper. That's what the Lord's Supper is celebrating, is that Jesus forgives our sins, bringing us then into his new covenant And part of the new covenant then is that he pours out his spirit for us so that we can actually walk in God's ways. And then fourthly, the bonus theme that doesn't get a separate paragraph in Matthew's uh, passage here, but it's sort of interwoven throughout. Maybe you noticed it. It's subtle. But I think the first readers would not have found it as subtle. They would have noticed it. Matthew includes various women in the genealogy. And it, was, it would have been normal in those days to just have male genealogies, to just trace your line through the, the fathers. And the other thing, too, is not only does he include women, which it in itself is a little bit peculiar, but he doesn't mention the women you might think he would mention. You would think he would mention maybe what were seen as the great matriarchs, Sarah, Abraham's wife, or Rebecca, or Leah, these kind of main figures from Genesis. But who does he mention? First of all, he mentions Tamar. We did a sermon on Tamar maybe two years ago, I think. You remember Tamar was repeatedly raped by her brother-in-law, Onan. And eventually, she actually pretends to be a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her so that she can become pregnant by him and gain for herself a rightful heir. That's in Genesis 38. He also mentions Rahab. This is another woman with a bit of a sexual past. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, and she was a foreigner then. What she did, though, is that she hid the Hebrew spies, you may remember, and she eventually converts to Yahwehism. 
You see Ruth is mentioned. Ruth is a Moabite foreigner, so a foreigner who converts to Yahwehism. Then we get the mention of the wife of Uriah. So this person, their name isn't actually even used, but the wife of Uriah, that would be Bathsheba. If you know Bathsheba, she was involved in an illicit sexual relationship with David in which she got pregnant with David, and David ended up killing her husband, Uriah, in order to cover up his tracks. So more sexual promiscuousness and deviancy and also murder now. And then finally, Mary is mentioned, who Mary was pure uh, of, of this sort of sin, but she was at least perceived by many as being an adulteress. And so you get a list of women who, in, in, for us, that's not necessarily bizarre, but uh, in that day, they would not have been viewed as highly as we do today. And so including women, including foreigners, when you don't have to, including people who would have been perceived as sexually tarnished. Maybe you were growing up and you remember when you sometimes you get two captains and the captains pick, you know, uh, uh, kickball teams or something like that. And you didn't want to be the kid who was picked last, right? But sometimes there was the kids who were picked last, typically. Matthew is going out of his way to point out these particular people who are like the people you would pick last. These aren't the people you would go out of your way to pick, but he goes out of his way to include them. Why? I think the reason is this. What we learn from this is that as God carries out his rescue plan, as he enters into history and he's, he's plotting out Jesus' genealogy, he has this in mind all along. He's, he's, he's creating Jesus' lineage, lineage. As God carries out this rescue plan through this chosen offspring, he chooses to do so through these sort of people. People that we don't expect. People that we wouldn't select. And so too, as God accomplishes this saving mission through Jesus, these are also the same sort of people that he comes to save. Not only does he include them in his carrying out of the mission, but he includes them in the saving, the, the salvation of this mission. These are the people he comes to save. We are the sort of people that he comes to save. As Jesus eventually says in the middle of the gospel, Matthew 9, verse 12 and 13, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so as God enters the story of humanity in order to save humanity, he doesn't do so by keeping himself pristine and removed from our blemishes. Rather, he includes and he incorporates them. He gets into the mess with us. He, he uses people who are unexpected and he uses our scars for his purposes. And so what we've seen here is that Jesus is the offspring through whom God blesses the nations he is the descendant of David whose kingship brings God's kingdom. He is the one who brings an end to Israel's exile as well as our own. And he is the one whose saving mission embraces the outcast. Jesus is the Christ, the very fulfillment of Israel's story. And as we've seen, this story of Israel is the story of the whole world. It's the story of all humanity. It's a story of the cosmos. God's election of Israel, their story was ultimately not about themselves. They were servants chosen for the sake of humanity. Chosen that God might use them, the offspring through them, to bless the nations with the salvation of their Messiah. And that has come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So first of all, if you're here today and you are not a believer in Christ, if you have not put your trust in that Christ, in that Savior, in his death for your sins, that would allow you to be a citizen of his kingdom, that enables you to experience the blessing of salvation to the nations promised to Abraham, that brings the end of exile from God, separation from a holy God. We would love to help you learn more about what it looks like to trust in Christ and receive that salvation and join his people. And as believers, what do we take away from a passage like this? We get to see who our Jesus is. We get to see the sort of mission he's on. This is what this Jesus is coming to do. Remember, Matthew is introducing us to Jesus. Jesus is arriving on the scene. We're about to get the virgin birth, right? Why does Jesus arrive on the scene? It's to be the resolution to Israel's story. It's to finally bring that salvation. And by the time we get to the end of the book, how does the end of, book, how does the end of the book close? Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. I am the king. I have completed my mission. Now, I'm handing the mantle to you. You take the baton, and now you go make disciples of all those nations. As Abraham, the promise to Abraham was God was going to bless the nations, a kingdom that is over all nations. So you go and make citizens of the nations. Bring them into this kingdom. Mark them out by baptizing them and teach them to observe all that King Jesus commands. And so a, a passage like this, where you say, what, it's just a genealogy. No, it's way more than just a genealogy. It is our mission. It's God's mission, and by extension, it's our mission to see this fulfilled. And I also, I also think it empowers us in our own struggles. Is, is to remind ourselves, to be reminded, that this is also the story in which our own stories are caught up. It's very common today for people trying to kind of find their meaning in life, trying to find their identity, trying to find what life is all about. Um, maybe you have uh, work evaluations every year and, or when you're going in for a job interview, what's one of the things they ask you? They say, hey, where do you see yourself in five years? And it's a way of sort of seeing, does this person have purpose? Do they have intentionality to what they're doing? And we're sort of taught as a society to sort of have an answer in terms of our career, to have some purpose. But this is what gives us even greater purpose, a purpose beyond just career, a purpose for all of life, a purpose for this universe. This is a story in which our own individual stories can be caught up into as we worship Jesus. This is the all-defining story that defines our own individual lives. And so to the one who maybe feels like their story is so small and insignificant, it's not because it's, it's brought into this cosmic plan of redemption. You get to participate in God's plan of redemption and renewal flowing through the local church by the power of the gospel. To the one who is struggling with the pain that characterizes their story, maybe the pain of, of your past story or the pain of your present story, you're reminded of how God is even incorporating you into this plan of redemption. How God even stoops down to work with people, to, to include people, to embrace people who we don't expect. To the person, I think specifically in this passage too, the person who has past sexual sin a part of their story. To see how God redeems those situations. 
to the person who feels angst and needing to construct their own story, the person who, who, who doesn't know who they are. Our society right now, is there's so many people trying to figure out what their identity is. God gives us our identity in this story. And I think it can also serve as a challenge then to not only a comfort, but maybe for some of us a challenge is that kind of question. Where do you see yourself in five years? What's your, are, are you actually living out this purpose? I think this ought to shape our priorities. It ought to shape maybe even the priorities of, of how we raise our children, what we think of as being valuable for them. And maybe you're approaching retirement. How does this shape your view of retirement? How does this shape your view of your career? It's not just some standalone purpose, but it ought to be subservient to this purpose. How do you view your marriage, the purpose of your marriage, your, your involvement in church, your, your relationship with your neighbors and your coworkers? Everything ought to be subsumed under this larger purpose of what God is doing to fulfill the, the story of Israel, which is the story of humanity. You might ask yourself this, and maybe we can use this as a small group question, which is how might my life look differently how might I live differently if I believed this more? How might my, what, what, what actions might I be willing to take? What behaviors might I embrace? What risks might I be willing to take if I believe this more deeply than I do right now? You may remember uh, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did so during a Jewish Passover meal. And this meal, the Passover, served to remind the nation of Israel, of that very event that would define them, right? The exodus, that's who they were. It was like for us, the 4th of July, and remembering the American Revolution, we, we see ourselves, that defines us as a nation if you're American. So for them, the exodus was a defining event for them. They were a people who had been purchased by God, redeemed from Egypt. That's what redeemed means. God purchased them, now he owns them. And he not only purchased them and rescued them, but then he brings them to Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant with them. He makes them his very own people, his treasured, <clears throat> his treasured possession. And so every year, Jewish families across Israel, God told them to celebrate this meal. In so doing, they were reliving these events. They were reliving the story that defined them as a people. And so each passing generation, we actually know this from some of the Jewish traditions of their oral traditions or oral writings, each passing tradition or each passing generation of Jews was to actually regard themselves as those people who had been brought out of Egypt. Even though they, they weren't, even though there was a time gap between them and the original event, they were to see themselves as a part of that story. They were brought out of Egypt. Jesus takes the Passover meal, though, and he says, all of that was ultimately pointing to me. God's ultimate act of deliverance, a new exodus, a new covenant, has now come in Jesus. And so as the Israelites saw themselves as a people defined by the exodus, so too do we see ourselves now defined by Christ's deliverance, the gospel. Whereas the Passover reminded the Israelites of their national story, so the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every week gets to remind us of our story. So the Lord's Supper, I want you to, to think of it as a defining meal. It's a meal that's about definitions. It's a meal that serves to define the people of God, to remind us who we are and to remind us of the story that we've been made a part of.